And here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. My name, of course, is Eddie Cohn. Thrilled you're here. Thrilled you're listening. 82 million podcasts around the world. And you have chosen this one. So I am stoked you're here. And we have a conversation today with my friend Adam Gust. He's a drummer, musician here in Los Angeles. And I have known him for, gosh, almost 20 years. He responded to an ad that I placed in Music Connection looking for a drummer. And he responded, and the rest is history. He played the drums on my first three records. So all the music today on the show is actually my own music. I know it's, it's, um, it's actually, you know, what's, what's cool. It was actually really cool listening to the music that I recorded, um, like years ago, like to me, it still sounds cool. So I, it's just, it was really nice to find a reason to put my music in the show and all the music that you hear, Adam played the drums on. So it's weird. I think a couple points here before the, before the conversation, the great thing about music and recording music, it's, it's there for an eternity. And it's weird. I'm, I'm obviously working on a record now. So it was just sort of cool and nice to listen back to some of my older music and sort of just hear the evolution of where I'm going. And um, yeah, it was cool. So I think more, though, to my point with Adam and something that I've been thinking about, and I sort of touched on it on my last podcast. And Adam, Adam and I get into this area a little bit. And I was thinking, I like men who aren't all about their ego and being first and being right. I mean, I, I guess I could say I like people, but I think men have this sort of history of bravado and their ego. And to me, it really sort of, I think, has created a lot of the problems that we face in our society. And I just, I think I realized... I like people that are, you know, soft-spoken, that are introspective, that think, that are caring. And I think that's why I've liked Adam all these years. Um, he's very thoughtful and he, he thinks a lot and he's caring. And, and I think to the point of music and being a drummer, it, it's so interesting, but I've been pitching my music and my PR agent's been sending my music out to managers and you know, publications and radio stations. And it's it's so interesting. You know, I've realized the music that I make and the podcast and the book I'm writing, it's it's all about trying to evoke more feeling. You know, this this person wrote back to my song and said something like, you know, the 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 EQ should be this way and the mix could be a little this and that. And it's sort of like you either like it or you don't. You either feel it or you don't. And I do think a lot of what we're experiencing right now, it's complicated, but everybody thinks they have an opinion. Everybody's staring at their phone all day. And I think people are less in touch with their own feelings than ever before. And to me, drums and the beat of a song, it's all about feel. I mean, sometimes we get so caught up in thinking and overthinking, and are we even thinking our own thoughts? Are we connecting with, you know, somebody else's thoughts? Are we putting somebody else's thoughts in front of our own? And, and to me, Adam and I, when we played shows together, I mean, sure, we rehearsed, but he knows 
a lot of times I'm playing based on feel, based on the vibe of the room. And, and, and you know, you can rehearse this and rehearse that, but so often Adam and I, when we were playing, we weren't, re- we weren't rehearsed to the point where it was this sort of mathematical performance. It left room for feeling. It left room for experimentation. And I think a lot of that is lost. So we touch on that. We touch on his path as an artist, world of drumming and being an artist here in L.A. I think it's a great talk, and I've been a fan of his for years, and I'm just really happy that he took the time to talk to me. I also thought the timing was really good because he had a really bad, serious injury to his hand and his wrist. It really it hit him in a traumatic way beyond just the physical the mental psychological impact of an injury and i think since i just broke my ankle i've been really i think i've been a bit traumatized by it all and i know i'm getting better but then i think my head starts to go to that place of am i ever going to get better am i ever going to be able to walk normally again and i know adam was facing that as a drummer thinking that your hands are your most important instrument your hands and your feet and the fact that he messed up his hand and, and possibly could never drum again so obviously was dealing with that trauma and psychological impact of injuring your hand so we talk about that also um yeah it's just a really good talk so I'm, I'm stoked that he took the time to talk to me and again i think so many of the tools that we're using now especially you know spotify and instagram and everything has a numerical rating it's sort of diluted how you feel. How are you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling good? Are you feeling bad? Are they, your, are they your own feelings? Are they somebody else's? I think so much of what I'm doing is just try to tap into how I'm feeling. And I think, again, social media, the media just sort of wants to evaporate feelings and turn everybody into a freaking robot. So I'll leave you with this. Are you a robot? Or are you a human being? who's thinking for him or herself. So I'll leave you with that. As always, you know where to find me on Instagram and Twitter at Eddie Cohn. Please reach out, say hello. Please share the show with your friends. I just released a new single, Verses, on Spotify, Bandcamp. You can find me at IamEddieCohn.com. Join the newsletter. And you can find Adam on Instagram at AdamGust. This will all be in the notes section of the podcast. So as always, thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. answering us some questions for a a new song that i have coming out in a few weeks this this company was you know some press stuff and they were asking me about um music and i don't remember how it was asked but i think it was somewhere along the lines of like you know why do you play music or you know write music or what's your inspiration and and i think it sort of often obviously changes over the years and you know that I broke my ankle uh, a few weeks ago, and I tr- I'm trying to remember 
the first time I sat down and played the piano or the first time I sat down and played the drums or even these last couple of weeks where I'm not able to do much, I am still able to at least sit down and play piano. And, and, and I think ultimately it just, it makes me feel better. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think, uh, you know, way back when, at, at what point did you realize or feel that just, and I don't even know if, if drums was always your instrument of choice. I think it was. But it, when did you start to feel like music was giving you something psychologically or mentally making you feel better? Uh, seventh grade. I remember, as far as drums are concerned, I was in shop class. And uh, there were these two pieces of wood. There were scrap pieces of wood. And I fashioned them into sticks in shop class and I took them home pounding out just along with the double bass and I went through both sides of it and time flew by and when the album ended I looked at my hands and they were all blistered and bloody <laughs> and I didn't I didn't even notice I like once it stopped that's when I noticed and that's when I realized like wow I must have been so into doing this that I didn't even register that I was injuring myself yeah that was I remember Going up, I got called up to dinner by my parents, and I went and I sat down. They're like, what the hell did you do to your hands, Adam? And I was like, oh, I got these sticks from shop class. I was messing around. I was like, why the hell didn't you stop? And I couldn't answer it. <laughs> so I think that was that first moment where I realized, wow, there's something much greater than myself at work here, that it would just tune out my pain receptors, you know, the, my, the joy of pounding out these rhythms with sticks on my bed over road or that sense of yeah. registering pain. What, what was the, you cut out, just of course it cut out right when you said like the the show or the song. What were you playing to exactly? Oh, Halloween. It was a German heavy metal band that I was really into. I was really into Slayer and Metallica and Anthrax early on. I really liked the power and the energy of it. Yeah. So those those sticks, I thought, oh, I'd be fun. I always wanted to kind of play along with those records. So just like, you know, the double bass patterns that were in that music represented those with these sticks. But even before that, I guess, were you drawn to the drums, particularly when you were even listening to music, even like at a younger age? How did you just become curious about? drum slash music i mean obviously that example that you gave me clearly you were feeling better and entranced by just playing with these 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 sticks but i'm just kind of curious at some point um just let's dive a little bit deeper into sort of your curiosity yeah, towards early, it. Uh, well i guess earlier on I, I would just say very early on i grew up in minnesota and it was very cold and I never wanted to learn to enjoy skiing or do anything that was outside. And so I always was trying to figure out some way to enjoy myself inside. Yeah. And that was that, unfortunately, that was often watching television or doing something frivolous. But I played piano when I was eight, and I really tried to get into it, but I just never felt the joy for it. And then I played trumpet. Like I liked trumpet, but I never wanted to practice. I liked the orchestra in school. Uh, I liked that, that sort of the sense of community about it, but I still didn't feel any strong attachment to it, like it would be a part of my life forever. 
And then uh, I ended up getting shifted to tuba in uh, high school because the high school band director was kind of like, well, you're the worst trump player and you're a big kid, so you can carry the sousaphone around the football field. So why don't we have you play tuba? So then that put me over by the percussion section. So I would be, you know, just pounding out one and five, one five on the tuba. And I remember being by our drummers and I was just like, God, you guys are terrible. I mean, like, I don't even play drums and I could walk back there right now and play these rhythms better than you guys can. I, I really felt that way. And so I remember like even the drum set once in a while that high school, the door was open and I would walk in there and just mess around. And I kind of felt like, oh, it kind of comes naturally to me a little bit. Like I could play rock beats right away without practicing. And so that I've got, I felt uh, drawn to the drums at that point. And then when, then I also had that experience with the drumsticks and so eventually it got to this point where I felt like, okay, I think I should have a drum set. So I saved, I, I, my first drum set was a gift for Christmas. This like piece of shit Ludwig kind of student drum set. And I pretty much just was on that all day, every day. My parents asked me to find a hobby. And uh, unfortunately for them, it was that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was loud. It's for me, it's interesting. You know, I got really sick as a kid around the age of 12. And um, I was a piano player before that. And then I remember my friend Matt Galkin had drums and I was really just, I love the energy of it. And and for me, I, I I think obviously I was probably scared out of my mind because it was about six months where nobody knew what was wrong with me. And then even when people knew what was wrong with me, I was taking pills and drugs for a while to try to get better and nothing was working. So the drums, I mean, you know, you've been, you've played on my songs for, for years and drums have always been a huge part of, of, of my songs and always been something that I've really been intrigued by. And, and I think... I think back in the early days, uh, it was probably releasing a lot of frustration and anger, just being able to like hit something. Um, yeah. And then just this, I've always loved the sounds of the toms. Um, there's probably like this tribal uh, group uh, dancing, almost it, probably the heartbeat. There's a lot of life and heart to the drums also. I, I, did you ever tap in or feel any of these emotions uh, beyond the joy of just being able to hit something? Was there something else also sort of going on? There was nothing like it when I first got my first drum set. It was, I knew right away that this would play a huge part in my life. Uh, time flew by. I felt good. I would break a sweat. I would just feel great. And I knew I could do it all day. Hours would go by and I wouldn't get bored. I wouldn't get tired. It would. I would play along with Metal Rite. The first album I played along with was a Theater of Pain by Motley Crue. <laughs> and I remember I just could like, I kept flipping the tape over and over and over and over to the point where I would forget how many times I flipped it. And it would be like four or five hours of just playing along with that album. And there was nothing like that. I had tried. I was really into drawing for a while, and I did archery, and I even got to, I did some roller skating for a little while. I had fun with that, you know, trying to find a hobby because my brother was so good at everything that I felt like I had to find what was mine. 
because hmm. he's just so off the charts, genius level human that I like really felt kind of insignificant when I would compare myself to him. So I felt like, okay, I just need to pick a lane and be me, you know, otherwise I'm just going to always feel like B class. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was uh, the first drum set I got that I, it was undeniable. Never doubted it. Um, as far as, you know, but in times of health, I never doubted it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was just like love at first beat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, um, the last sort of question that I'm intrigued with in this area, um, you know, I think also as a musician, I mean, who knows, maybe we'll talk more about this, uh, but I'm just, I'm drawn to this other question. You know, I, I won't forget, um, you know, it's one thing to sort of like mimic Alex Van Halen, um, you know, and then as a songwriter for me, I, you know, I, I think the first time I really started to pay attention to songs was Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and like Alice in Chains. That's sort of somehow I went from playing piano and drums to being intrigued by songs when I heard, you know, Nevermind or... Uh, the first Alice in Chains record. So then I, and then it sort of, at what point did you sort of feel like, okay, how does that shift? How did that shift happen for you when it's sort of, I'm playing along to, hmm, maybe I could actually start doing my own thing, or maybe this is something that I could do in my own bands. Do you know, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm asking? Uh, like to kind of be an artist, <laughs> yeah, to kind yeah. of personalize it. Yeah, I felt like, okay, this drums are going to be a part of my life. I don't want to do anything else. I really need to figure out how to monetize this. I, it was, I had a teacher um, who was teaching and playing a lot and trying to get into the scene of recording in Minneapolis, Jesse Wheeler. And I remember kind of watching him and learning from him about how do you juggle all these things so you can make a living and so all you have to do is play drums. Because I just knew that I wanted to do that. I, I was perfectly fine with practicing six hours a day. And I, so I looked at it very blue collar. Like I just, I want to be a working stiff drummer. Like whatever that means, if I have to teach, if I have to do shitty gigs, or, you know, whatever. So I just knew, okay, there's a kind of requisite skill set necessary to have those kind of jobs. You have to be able to read, you have to be able to play all styles, you have to have great time. I never thought much about the artistry side of it. I thought more about, oh, well, this, the drummers who are working all the time do this, all the, I've read Modern Drummer, like cover to cover every time it came in the mail. I would work through all the exercises and read about those drummers and figure out what the working drummers were doing. And I would see, okay, there are these drummers with fancy, shiny haircuts and wear cool clothes. That's not me. I'm not cool enough to be that. So I'm not going to really try to be a band drummer. I'm going to try to be, you know, more like the guys who are just get the call and do the job and get paid and go on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's always how I saw myself. And so that's what, and then being into in music school, they're very good about a curriculum about, okay, you need to jump through these hoops. These are the things that you need to learn in order to be a pro. And then I was really happy to be able to go to North Texas, very reputable jazz program. And I was surrounded by a lot of like-minded drummers who seem to be in the same boat. Like they want to have the requisite skills to get the jobs that they don't have to work overnights at Walgreens, you know, or whatever, like, 
as I had done in my past. So I was always just looking at it as a, as a vocation. I never really thought about having my personal stamp on things. In fact, I tried not to. I really felt like the more personal my drumming was, the less I'd be hireable by mm. a variety of projects. So I really just wanted to, okay, what's the vocabulary in this idiom? What's the vocabulary in this idiom? What's the sound? What's who are the main drummers? I picked my top three in every style and emulated them. And that was how I approached it. So I guess I, I wish that I had thought more in terms of being an artist the whole time. The scholarship to North Texas was huge for me because then it was like some kid from middle of bumblefuck Minnesota, you know, what does he know, you know, on the grand global scale of the talent pool of, you know, Los Angeles, New York, blah, blah, blah. Am I really of that ilk? And so when I was accept not only accepted, but had a scholarship to North Texas, that's when I felt, okay, I need to stay on this trajectory I am of practicing a lot and work just studying a lot of music. go down two avenues but i i am part of my my issue with social media and i know a lot of people um are you know pointing fingers at politics and politicians and you know donald trump and uh they're the cause of, of all the disruption but somehow you know you you're bringing up comparison and um I have a lot of people that find me on Instagram, uh, some of my friends, and I don't follow them back. And, and I, a couple of them I know have reached out to me and taken it personally. And, and I, I'm not really interested in people's social media, um, their social media life. And I'm very aware of, because I probably have these these same characteristics of you where I, I can't get into that rabbit hole of comparing myself. And as great as I think I'm doing, um, somebody could be on a trip. Somebody could have done a better record than me. I, it's easy for us to get off track. And I think the more – I think there's a reason why often people say, you know, your best friends you can count on your hand, you know, less than five, less than ten. I just, I just think the more people that I'm visually in contact with – I don't think is psychologically good for me. Uh, and I, I, I'm curious, how is Facebook, because I know you're on Facebook pretty regularly, at least, and we can talk about this. Yeah. Does that increase this, this insecurity of where you go down to the comparison world? Because you're actually one of the few people I've noticed on social media that's really supportive uh, towards my work and what I'm doing. And, and, and I really appreciate it. It makes me feel like um, you understand the work that I put in and you like it. And it, it's great. It feels good. Um, but I, and I do that towards other people too, but then I don't really 
But I have to be very cautious to not look at too much because then it's going to get me off track. I mean, how how do you, uh, as one who may be susceptible to comparing your life to other people's lives, how do you sort of juggle that that world? Yeah, the greatest gift I have in my life is I've learned that the comparison I want to hold myself to is how much do I love what I'm doing versus how much does someone else love what they're doing? So I used to compare very hierarchically in terms of achievement and income and recognition, you know, these these things. But I guess when I was at a point where I couldn't do what I love to do, I really realized how important that is. And I took it for granted for so many years. And that taking that for granted is what led me to do those comparisons with other people. And my favorite drummer in the world is Keith Carlock. And I'll never forget this time I was, this is probably like 2004 or something. And I remember I was going to play Bruce's Steakhouse with this salsa band in Norwalk, you know, for 75 bucks. And I was just looking at what's Keith Carlock doing? I was like, oh, he's playing Royal Festival Hall tonight. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just like, I remember a feeling of, you know, about that big. And I just like, oh man, I've got to use that for fuel for the fire. I've got to try to get to that level where I'm playing with Sting at Royal Festival Hall so I don't have this aching feeling. But then now looking back on that, where I was, I loved playing in that salsa band. And I was going to have some great food and have a fun night and watch cute Latinas dance. And I I mean, that was so awesome. And I didn't even factor that in to the equation of comparison. And now I think that's all I compare is how much am I loving what I'm doing compared to somebody else. And even just compared to how much I loved have loved what I'm doing over the arc of my life. So yeah, comparing, yeah, what are you comparing? I think is the big question. And also, I mean, this is what I connect most with people uh, on social media. It's it's very connective. Uh, people who have kind of gone through similar things that I have, I can kind of suss out and read between the lines with a lot of people's posts. And I feel like certain people will understand things that I have, come to understand. And so I might message them and sort of test the waters and nine times out of 10, I'm right. And so then I can develop a more of a connection from there. It's interesting because I think you and I just um, are are in different playing fields when it comes to connection because, um, and I I don't know if it's like I'm needier or something, but there's something about, um, like the quality of somebody's voice, um, the sound of somebody's voice, experience together. I I have a hard time gaining more connections or friendships through social media because to me it just feels feels sort of like a a fragment of a real human being, my interpretation of social media. I just, I don't feel like I'm getting the full spectrum of, of a human being. And um, yeah. so I don't know, I, I have a hard time navigating uh, and, and nurturing and, and creating more relationships through that, through that program. Yeah, I think I'm getting better at realizing what 
is hierarchical and what is relational. Like what is, look, what are people trying to, are people thinking in terms of hierarchy, in terms of dominance, like who's here and who's there? Or are they thinking of ways to, that they, what they share with each other and what part of how their community might overlap with someone else? And so I've, I definitely don't get along with hierarchical people. And a lot of those people are, do extremely well in the music business. You know, they, I mean, the more you focus on climbing the ladder, the more, you know, you're going to bring climbing the ladder into your life. And I mean, Matt, the people that that's the thing that's most important to them, you know, God bless them. Uh, I think that was a part of my life for a while when I moved out here. I mean, it's kind of the reason you move to LA is to climb the ladder. But uh, at this point now, I've, I don't really care about that. Uh, the goals I had 11 years ago are completely different than the goals I have now. And 11 years ago, if I would have known the goal, if I was somebody had told me 11 years ago what my goals are now, I would have thought that was absurd. <laughs> it's just that's like you, you're talking. You're clearly talking about somebody else. And now I just I don't give a shit about the goals that were the most important things to me. Things that I've learned over the journey I've been on for 10 years, I've even looked back on people that I've known and kind of had, wait a minute, things that I thought about them now through the lens that I have, I realize, wow, they were struggling with something. They were, you know, things that I thought that they were antagonizing me for was actually something they were struggling with internally. And so that has allowed me a hell of a lot more compassion than I've ever had when I was taking everything personally and like thinking more hierarchically about everything. Give me, give me an example though, where you're sort of um, testing the waters with people on social media. Again, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like I'd rather, I don't know. I, and I also feel like Facebook public platforms. Like if I finish a song, I would rather email it to you and hear what you have to think. And you could, you and I could have a conversation about it. But when you're presenting something on a public platform where ego is involved, image is involved, and it has this strange way of, you know, people might be communicating on Facebook when they're at the toilet or sort of at the post office. You don't really know what state of mind somebody is in when they're on Facebook. All of those reasons make me apprehensive to really put too much of myself out there. So you're apprehensive about putting it out because you feel like whatever you get back from it might not be a enough of a return on investment to have even wasted your time? It's not... Kind of it's not even that. Like, I don't trust people's state of mind when they're on that platform. Like, yeah. it's, it's, I trust that if I send somebody an email from my email list, if I send somebody, if I call somebody on the phone and we have a conversation, I trust that they're actually fully present or as much as they can be with whatever I wrote or sang about or what we're talking about. But Facebook and Twitter, it's a wild card emotionally. You don't know where people are. And then they're also worried about their own image. And I just, and I think there's a lot of fire starters on social media. I just don't trust being, um, to me, it doesn't feel like a safe place to really reveal that much of myself. Hmm. It's 
not a safe place to reveal yourself. Uh, it might not be. Like, but it, like it has to me, to be- one last point. Like to me, this I feel much safer having this conversation with you because there's nuance and context, and we're sort of like slowly getting a little more intimate the more we talk. And you know, we've spent 30, 45 minutes on the phone, and um, I don't know. It just to me, this feels more. Um, contextual and nuanced and productive and um, I feel more of my brain firing it, it's it's just all of these all of those elements to me make me feel uh, safer maybe more comfortable um, as opposed to putting something on a social media platform where there's 800 people and nobody's really thinking about I don't think people are really putting as much thought uh, as opposed to like a, a one-on-one conversation, but yeah, you yeah, may that's true. You may think completely differently. Uh, well, social media is what you make it. So I, I, I participate in it in without expectation. Hmm. That's the hardest part. And but I mean, the only thing I'm trying to get out of it is feedback and connecting. I, I love the term like finding your tribe. I mean, I know that's overused, but for me, that always is kind of a home base. Like if I did something, if I put a ton of time into something and posted it, and I even found one person that it resonated with, and then I DM'd them, and it led to a conversation, and now I talk to them every month or every couple of months and check in with them, and then it was totally worth it. Hmm. And I think if you look at like social media marketing, of course, for musicians, it's a huge thing. And if you think in terms of that, you're always checking the analytics and you're kind of seeing, okay, this post did this. I need to do more of these posts. And uh, and I think if you're just trying to promote an album, like I could never do that. I could never promote an album. I would have anything that I'm trying to put forth on social media has to be ultimately for my own benefit that I would do with or without social media. I guess the most success I've had in terms of what social media has done for me was this, uh, what I'm working on Wednesdays I did for a long time. I was just trying to get better at video editing. And I knew that if I held myself to create a weekly video, that it would just, that would kind of, keep my tabs on myself, keep stay accountable to myself. And so I kept doing that and kept getting better. And I would, people would comment and I would DM some people. Most people wouldn't DM me back. I would, I, I was very active about seeking out feedback and it was ultimately bettering myself. And, but I, I wasn't really trying to market anything at the time. So that was the key. I think that really helped me not worry so much about the response. Uh, just and breadcrumbing this idea of like, okay, I have a project and there are these incremental moments of improvement and I'm documenting them on social media. I think that's a good way to have attitude to have, mm-hmm. even just for yourself to look back on your post you've made and see, oh, it kept getting better. It's sort of like rather than a resume, uh, think of it like a portfolio. Rather, you know, it's more like, oh, I can see incremental improvement over this time. That means I, you know, there's something that's going to get better down the road. And so I, I think if I had an album that I was trying to get more likes and sales and all that, I think I would get really depressed about <laughs> <laughs> social media. But yeah. uh, I think, I think, man, hierarchical versus relational. That's the biggest thing I've learned, and I'm going to carry on into my 50s and my 60s. Is 
as long as what I'm doing is seeking out to build a tribe of people that I can connect with, then that's great. And if I had also just learning people who are heroes of mine, how they handle social media, I think that's great. I'd be like, oh, cool. If that's working for him, I appreciate that. I mean, I can watch freaking Instagram drummer videos all day. I just, I love it. It's fun. I love to see the camera angles, the sounds they're getting. I try to decipher what mic they're using and how they're getting what they're getting. And that gives me idea how to do what I'm doing. And I think for a singer songwriter, it's a lot harder. It's interesting, I'm, but I'm thinking uh, something that I struggle with, or, or maybe I just know myself in the sense that even with my podcast, uh, I think I'm just, this is all like self-discovery in this weird sort of way. Like I'm trying to find myself as an artist and figure out my true feelings about the world, about music, about how I navigate this insane world that we live in. Um, and, you know, you talk about feedback and, and it's weird. Like sometimes I get nervous about getting even feedback, whether it's good or bad, because I don't want to, I want to find my own true self as an artist, mm -hmm. as, as a creator, whether it's a, podcast, whether it's as a songwriter or whether it's the book that I wrote that I'm trying to publish, whether it's articles that I write, you know, I just, I think we are bombarded with so much information and then we get in, in that sort of feedback loop of what people think about us. And I think it, it sort of can feel innocuous or innocent, like, ah, what's the big deal that this person, um, but even you said it, like you said, okay, well, based on the, the metrics of Facebook, I'm noticing that this type of post is getting more likes or feedback. So that I guess that means that I should do more of those types of things. And I, I don't know, I, I don't, I'm, I don't want to get caught up in doing more of what people like. Mm -hmm. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, the artist versus vocational musician. Uh, I still feel very vocational. Uh, I think a singer songwriter, if they're trying to sell songs to a pop artist or get placements, I think that's a little more vocational than somebody who's trying to, you know, create an album that represents their heart. And that's what's compelling them to put the time into their craft. And hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, but that's always been the balance for me, and the scale is, for me has always tipped towards working drummer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I guess for also the, a big difference I've noticed between myself and other musicians, particularly in L.A., is I love the trenches. I think there's this school of thought that thinks, okay, I move to L.A., I, get to, I go out every night, I meet enough people to start playing shitty bar, shitty bar gigs, you know, and then eventually I meet that person, hooks me up with Katie Perry, whoever, and then I tour the world. And I guess I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind when I moved out here. But I noticed I kind of loved the trenches. I loved the shitty gigs. I loved this like travel, the going to a new club, playing in a bunch of different bands, charting stuff the night before for somebody I'd never played with. I really loved that. And then Red Elvis is this ridiculous <laughs> Russian uh, rockabilly band. It's, I, I loved that. And now 
technically, it was kind of a bar band. We played festivals, and we did play for 30,000 people in Red Square in Moscow, and we toured Russia, but still, it felt very gritty. You know, hmm. we still loaded in through the kitchen <laughs> in a lot of the clubs we would play, and I, I never felt any strong pull to have to have that pie-in-the-sky gig. Yeah. I, I definitely admired the people who had it, but then even the people who I would talk to that I that were willing to confide truthfully in me that, about those gigs, they felt very handcuffed. I mean, they had to play the same thing every night. They had to stand in this box every night so that the light hit them right. They never did anything to call attention to themselves because it's all about the front person and like their free time. It was all, you know, if you need to be here 10 minutes, you know, early to every load, it just everything was very kind of planned out. Yeah. And occasionally those people would come and play in Red Elvis's and they would just be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, you can fucking ask Igor to take the van and go to a party. <laughs> like, I mean, we'd be in Eugene, Oregon and say, hey, there's a party over here. And everybody would go to the hotel. And I'd be like, hey, Igor, can I take the van? And he's like, yeah, I heard the keys. And I'm like, you know, you'd never do that playing for J-Lo or whatever. I guess I always, I so on one hand, it didn't resonate with this imposter complex that I kind of had for my life. <laughs> it kind of suited me that I was at this B level, but I think on a genuine level also, I just really loved the trenches. I loved the fire, the bar gave blues gigs, the jazz gigs, the learning the night before subbing for a singer songwriter, but hotel cafe i felt that it felt very fulfilling to me i never yeah. felt like it was just you know chasing the this term that's always bugged me chasing the golden ring or the, you know this idea of like oh it's all that thing that you want is always out of reach i just always felt like the reaching for it was my joy think now that you're looking back on what how how long ago was it when you hurt or damaged your wrist or hand and i'm sure you have a different feeling about it all now as opposed to when it happened in those first few years after uh, but can you sort of talk about the shift and your approach maybe briefly explain the injury and then how did your mentality shift where Again, I, 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 I've had a lot of health stuff happen to me throughout my lifetime. Um, I don't think, on the one hand, I am blessed that I got really sick as a kid because I think it's added a lot of sensitivity uh, and an emotionality in the way I live my life. Uh, but I also am, am sort of um, come to terms with this belief that you can't explain everything. Yeah, yeah. The the shift you were mentioning and be trying to explain it. Uh, I had seven year period where I struggled with explaining it, and now it's I'm I'm grateful that it happened. 
I really see it as a blessing. And that's not just some frou-frou kumbaya shit. I mean, I really feel like I worry for the person I would have been if it hadn't happened. And I feel like now it's given a complete meaning to everything that I'm doing. I mean, it's the why behind everything I'm working on now. And it's, it's really helped me to get in tune with competing with myself for loving what I do more. So, I mean, for the drums, I mean, like the, the highest level I can achieve as a drummer is having an absolute love for playing. And I feel like I'll never be the best drummer in the world, but I'll be one of the drummers in the world that loves playing more than anyone else. And that's entirely because of my accident. Hmm. So, so it was May 8th, 2010. I walked through a glass door. It was my fault, but I, it was gory and I've emergency rooms, hands in cast for a few months. And uh, I had very hierarchical views of it. I always, I felt like, okay, I'm a weak person would would let this get them down, but a strong person would overcome this. They'd fight against it. They would battle back. They would not, you know, they're not going to be a pussy. They're, you know, going to just charge full head into it. You know, the obstacle is the way. And it's just, now, what I understand about what it is, was, I, it was the complete wrong way to go about it. Uh, I've learned a lot about what trauma is and what trauma is not, and how to just the degrees of trauma are all the way from minuscule things to, you know, people protecting our country in wartime and having horrible things happen to them. So, I mean, there's a whole variety of things in between and depending on who you are it affects you differently hmm. so what my accident did for me was it gave me my purpose my purpose in my life is to make my worst day my best and so every day I'm alive if I get closer to making my worst day my best then I am fulfilling my reason for being on this earth and I mean and I just appreciate being able to play these drums right here, right? I mean, it just, holy shit, I don't give a shit what gig I'm playing. If I get to play these and not hate playing, I, I am blessed. So, I mean, the problem that I was going through, I didn't realize I was triggering my trauma every time I would play drums for seven years because I didn't know it was a trauma. Every time my hand would seize up, I thought it was the nerve damage that's in my thumb, which I still have, but I didn't. I couldn't separate what was happening psychologically from what was happening physically. And so, I mean, I'd get to the end of a gig and I would just, I would have hated how it felt to play drums and people would be like, oh man, you sounded fine. Don't worry about it. You're over, you know, you're overthinking it. You sound great. And I was traumatizing myself every time I would play. And I mean, that sounds, I mean, to somebody who doesn't understand trauma, that sounds like I'm overinflating it and I'm being weak and, oh, come on, it's, you weren't over. It's like, no, I've, I've read and studied enough about trauma to know what was happening. I've had therapy. I understand a lot of different therapies around it and how it lives in the body. And this poignant moment where I was reading this journaling I was doing about my accident while I was practicing, and I came to this part where I smashed the glass in my journal and my arm seized up. 
And I was just like, holy motherfucking shit, that's it. Every time I've had an arm seizure over the last seven years, it was because I kind of it was a response to that moment that I had my accident. What happened playing with you, playing with Cafe R&B, playing with whoever, Nikhil, whoever, I would always think it was the nerve damage, but it was psychological. And I just, I'm, I've, on the one hand, I feel bad that I spent seven years not exploring that. But on the other hand, now I like, wow, if I can help anyone not to go through that seven years of struggling with this kind of ghost chasing trauma, if I could do anything to help that and prevent somebody else from having going through that, then I will have lived a fulfilling and meaningful life. So that's where I'm at about it. And the, one of the best ways for me to do that is by example and be like, oh my freaking God, I love playing so much. Thank God I don't have that issue anymore. And I feel like I'm playing the best I ever have in my life now. And I just, I, and I feel like I've, I've been able to reach a point of utter relaxation in my playing because if I have any amount of tension in my right hand, my arm seizes up. So I'm almost forced to have zero tension in my body. And like Alexander technique is great. Somatic therapy is amazing. And now I'm able to apply all these things to my drum practice, loving your practice. And I feel like it makes me a better teacher having learned to play drums twice. Hmm. And it's just made me so and have endless gratitude for being able to play. psychological here um, and therapeutic but why well I don't want to put you on the spot maybe but I you know I do think about the word trauma and I do think about like physical trauma uh, psychological trauma um, both obviously powerful and and you know I think um, I deal with psychological trauma Pretty regularly, um, you know, I've, I've had anxiety disorder for years. It's all around health and this fear of dying. I, I think I love being healthy and I love my life so much that when something goes awry, um, be it the broken ankle, um, I and it's weird. I, I don't take things for granted because I think as a kid, I learned from a very young age that life is very fragile and this can end pretty instantaneously. And I've actually loved 2020. I know that goes against the grain of salt. 
I know people out there want us to think that 2020 was the worst year of our lives. And I think culturally, um, I don't think we know how to deal with trauma, ironically. Uh, And I don't think there are voices out there that add perspective, that uh, relax people. I think the media, there's nobody in, in these newspapers or CNN or Fox that is adding any sort of levity. I think the world wants people to be anxious. Um, so I just, I'm curious, which is another reason why I think I'm very careful about who I allow into my life, who I pay, who I pay attention to, uh, because I value quiet time, peaceful time, uh, a, a balanced state of mind. I, I sort of relish all of those things. Do you meditate? Yeah, I meditate. Yeah, what's your meditation practice like? Um, pretty standard, you know, 10 to 15 minutes every day, either morning or night. I'm very generous towards myself uh, because a lot of times I like to write first thing in the morning. So it sort of depends on my headspace. Um, cause I feel like, and I, I go through stages where I'll try and write every morning for an hour, an hour and a half. And to me, that's, oh. to me, that's very meditative. Yeah. Uh, so it, it sort of serves, it serves its purpose in that way. Uh, or I'll just, you know, sit quietly, uh, put on a sort of like the sound of, uh, of bowls or, or waves or something and just sit and, that's it. That's that's my practice, either writing or sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, because I guess back to the trauma point, I, I just, I, I think there's a few things that I'm just thinking about, just this the, the ego of the man being in control, being strong. And I, I think I've always responded to you as, as other guys. I like guys that aren't all about strength, being first, being right. Uh, being the best, I, I respond more to humility and vulnerability, uh, which is which are characteristics that I feel you've always had. Um, and that speaks that speaks heavily to hierarchy versus relational. Those are all very relational ideals. And so, yeah, this sort of bravado of hyper masculine posturing, it's it's very hierarchical. And it's I think I'll, I, the, what I'm coming to learn about what being hierarchical is, is all it does is feed power to the top. Like the more people think about where people are in the ladder, all people it, all it does is feed people who are controlling everything anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I felt like we've always connected on that level. Like I don't think we've ever tried to outdo each other <laughs> in a yeah. masculine sense or anything. And even, yeah, like we, we traveled as a duo on tour. And I mean, that takes a lot of relational uh, skill <laughs> to yeah. be able to yeah have a good rapport like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just that, that quality of, the ego of guys just all again i think that's part of the the root of of society's evils that you just got a bunch of men and uh positions of power that get off on being in that state of mind where people look up to them or think they're the greatest and i don't think a lot of people can handle that um state of mind and they ultimately sort of manipulate others around them and feed, feed their ego even more 
Um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm curious though about like we, I sort of went down another tangent, but I, I'm just curious. At what point? Obviously, it feels like physically you were getting better, but psycho like psychologically, what were you? Were you even aware of something that you were, that you were worried worried about when you hurt your hand slash wrist? Uh, were, were you like thinking about what were you going to do with the rest of your life? Cause you possibly came really close to not being able to drum ever again. Were you even aware psychologically what you were dealing with? I was not at all. And I, and I am very disappointed in our culture's attitude towards exploring that. Because, I mean, again, like hierarchically, the hypermasculine male would be like, oh, I'm going to battle back against this. I'm not going to check in with my emotional intelligence. That's what pussies do. I'm just going to work hard, focus forward. And and even it's I was getting acupuncture and that was helping me. I was incrementally getting better with that. I had a great drum instructor, Tony Bronigal, who was helping me like circumvent these issues I was having, but they were all just kind of putting a bandaid on a much, you know, a, a gaping wound of a psychological issue that I wasn't addressing. And I just, I'm, and I, I've explored, I've thought about that a lot. Like how come I didn't read the books that I'm into now? How, like, why did no one suggest that? Why did I not seek that out? And I just realized it was because it's that, that code of silence that is around trauma, that people are not meant to talk about it because it's weakness. And it really keeps people down. Again, like all that does is feed the top of the food chain. I think it is intentional. I think it's like marketing and politics and all these things. They're, they're designed in a certain way to suppress people. And mm -hmm. so I think, the only, I mean, there's like you can try to, battle back against it in, in hierarchical terms, but I don't think you're ever going to win. I think we just have to really try to be as relational as possible. And that, and that has everything to do with being relational to yourself, something that I'm really fascinated with and I foresee being a huge part of my life is trauma-informed education. And so there are a lot of therapists that I've, I've spoken with a lot of therapist friends just to make sure that I am not crossing in or like out stepping outside my lane. Like I've read a lot of books. I've had a lot of personal experience. I've journaled a lot. I feel like I'm, my emotional intelligence level is the highest it's ever been. And compared to other people, it's higher than them. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the hierarchical version of that. But so I, I feel like all I can do is try to improve myself to the point that if I do try to, help other people it's not triggering anything inside of me because that's the biggest problem that we're gonna have coming out of covid is trauma triggers trauma i mean that's a it's really a glass jaw i mean i think for like if a man wants to be strong and he feels like strength is not talking about trauma it's a complete paradox it's completely backwards to me because well, i mean yeah, I mean, it's it's it really weakens you. I mean, if when push comes to shove, if something triggers a trauma you're not aware of, you're you're a goner. And so to really have had the that sort of inner strength to explore that is really what's making you stronger. And to not do that, you're just setting yourself up for failure, like I was. 
And it's funny, what what really, and I could come across as being insensitive to people that have had personal interaction with COVID. Um, but I, I think the emotional, psychological trauma that is going on to our culture is, in my opinion, going to be far great have a far graver impact than anything from the disease of covid when you're telling people to stay home social distancing i mean even today i was outside in line at the pool um in santa monica and a woman in front of me was they have these little circles on the ground where people yeah. sh- where people should stand and a woman was like a foot outside of the circle. And another woman said to her, you know, in, in this sort of ex, um, very dramatic, um, hypersensitive, anxiety-ridden way, what are you doing? You, you, you know, they, they put those circles there for a reason. It's for our safety. And I just, I'm just thinking it's kind of crazy um, what's gone on with the world. And, and I... And I get frustrated when you have these politicians who are still getting paid, billionaires, millionaires, making decisions for people that don't have the luxury of being millionaires or billionaires, have, yeah. have to work, have to provide for their families. Um, I just, I think, I guess my last point, as we were driving back home from Arizona, I was amazed at how fast people were driving. And uh, I went online, Emmy was driving, I was, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I went online and I looked up how many people die annually uh, across the world from car crashes. And the stats- it said 1.5 million people die every year from car crashes. And so I just thought to myself, what would happen to the world if every single day CNN, Fox, and New York Times posted these really gory videos of people splayed out across the freeway with blood everywhere, dead from car crashes? I mean, 1.5 million people die every year in a fucking car. And I'm just like, that number is staggering. And I just, I think it's, we we are living in a world where it's about attention, getting people's attention. And the media and Facebook is doing, and Instagram and all the algorithms are doing whatever they can to get people's attention. And I guess that's why I feel stuck because, you know, back to what you brought up about having songs and having a record and having a music video, I realized firsthand that I should post them on Facebook and Instagram. I'm doing this music psychologically for my own health, but I obviously, I want people to buy it. I want people to listen to it, but I am very cautious to spend too much time on these platforms, I'm very cautious to allow the media to tell me the best thing to do is to just stay home and wear a mask because I don't want to be like that woman who's having a panic attack because somebody else is standing six to twelve inches outside of that circle. I just I'm I'm um, I'm having 
I'm conflicted because I've had a great year, but when I look at the world around me and sort of the unraveling that it feels like is happening around me, um, I'm I'm um, a little I'm scared of, of of what's happening to our world. Yeah. So, what advice would you have for this woman who freaked out about the other person being outside the circle? Well, here's the. Th- the tricky part, and I'm guilty of something that I'm critical of, I don't know that person at all. And maybe she has an autoimmune condition um, that creates anxiety. Maybe she watches the news all day. The irony is, is that I've had an autoimmune condition for, my, for the last 35 years, and I've been in good health. And I guess I know from the literature that I read that if you are outside in, in the air, I mean, it's one thing if we were in an enclosed space. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I mean, maybe that's what I would say to her. I would say, I would say listen, I have an autoimmune condition, uh, but you are outside, you're both wearing masks, it's okay that this lady went a foot outside of her circle. She wasn't trying to create any drama or anxiety, but more than likely you're okay. Um, I, I would probably say something like that, but I don't think there's anything, you know, and this, this actually goes back to you a little bit and then I'll let you go. I remember those nights when you were drumming for me and I was like, fucking hey, dude, you're playing great. But it didn't matter what I would say. You were still stuck in that psychological place where you didn't think what you were playing was, was good or you weren't satisfying your level of standard. So, you know, you say to me, what should I say to this woman? But I often sort of feel like a lot of, there really isn't anything that you can say. It's ultimately a personal decision or a stance where you have to make that choice to calm down or relax or or change your perspective. Yeah, and so what should she do in order to build the skills in order to do that? I just think there has to be a lot of education for people about how our brains work. I mean, I can't help but think about there was a time in human evolution where we thought the earth was flat. There was a time when we thought we only used 10% of our brains. You know, and there was a time when, like, people shell-shocked people were, it was called cowardice. You know, and but I mean, now we have MRI machines that can have movies about brain activity, and we know so much more about it. But the advances in science haven't caught up with the societal preconceptions. And so I think that has that crosses a lot of boundaries. I think that there's so like climate change deniers. And it's because they don't believe in science. And I think there are social climate change deniers that don't believe in science. And I just feel like there has to be more education about how the brain works. And that's psychology and therapy. But in a hierarchical, hypermasculine, patriarchal world, that is a weakness to work on your emotional intelligence. And so I... I feel like there are some inroads into education that are happening that are applying therapy techniques. And that's definitely what I'm doing to my drum practice. And that's what makes me hopeful is like people, I guess the simplest way I would describe it to anybody is really check in with yourself on what is your intrinsic motivation and what is your extrinsic motivation. And for those of us who went to college, we have some concept of what that is for other people. It would just, 
I think what COVID is doing to a lot of people is that they're realizing that their entire lives are extrinsic. They're living it completely hierarchical. They're comparing everything in terms of how much money they're making, all these things. And so now during COVID, they're realizing that all these extrinsic things are really shallow. Yeah. And I mean, the more we focus on those and the more that social media kind of forces that hand, the more I think we just need to look inward and see like, what would I do if I didn't get any money or recognition for what I'm doing? And I need to put more attention on that. And so I think the uh, real strong symptom of mental health issues in a culture is how big is the gap between what people present on social media and what they really think about themselves. There's this amazing book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, by Terrence Real that changed my life. And he has this view on narcissism that I'd never heard before. And his, he has a very compelling argument that narcissism is self-hate. And it's funny because we always think of a narcissist as loving themselves. But the actual story of narcissists, he was in love with his image. And so and but so to be in love with your image is to completely deny any focus and attention to yourself, who you really are. And so I think social media is just like the most obvious evidence of that possible. I think people are in love with what they put on social media and the bigger gap between what's on social media and what their intrinsic values are. That gap is that is a huge problem for mental health. And so I, man, and so Terry goes on to say that our internal dialogue is a conversation between the image of ourselves and who we really are. And so the more that gap is, the more imbalanced that internal dialogue becomes. And that's when, you know, freaking Anthony Bourdain, you know, I don't know, like I heard people say how stupid it is that Anthony Bourdain, how stupid must he have been to kill himself? And I guess with the path that I've been on, I was like, I think you're the stupid one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, how could you say that that's a level of intelligence that's just like zero empathy? The only thing that makes me hopeful is that growth mindset is being taught in school. <laughs> yeah. I, I think most of us are lost, but I just hope that like generations from now it'll get better. I don't think there's any quick fix. I've almost written off most people. <laughs> I don't think anybody can really of like cash in all the extrinsic energy they've spent and convert it into intrinsic energy. But I just hope that people can teach their kids growth mindset, which is straight out of therapy. I mean, or therapeutic uh, ideals. Yeah. And like applying that to education is our only hope. And I mean, I guess if anyone is really feels like they want to make that difference or want to try to check in with themselves, like reading books about trauma in the sense of being empathetic to someone who has it. Like, I think if somebody's reading it to think, oh, well, I want to see if I see myself in this, I think that gets a little too personal. I think if somebody has the attitude of trying to learn about mental health in a sense that it allows them to understand others better, I think that's a good approach to have. And But, uh, hmm. yeah, I think social, yeah, I think social media is definitely a huge impact on the self-hate that is part of narcissism yeah i mean um this you're bringing up a whole other world but i'm i'm gonna i'll let you go just because i i, yeah. I, do, I do think part of the issue that i have with the world is is um apathy 
it doesn't feel like people really care about others because they're so caught up in themselves. Yeah. And social media, again, whether whether it's the perpetuates. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just I I, again, another reason why I post and and get the hell off, because I just I want to get back into my world of music and writing and face to face conversations. To me, this is um, more of an intrinsic uh, yeah, completely. That, I mean, that's what I see you doing. You've always had an artistic outlet for yourself. And if, I think that you would do yoga, whether you were a yoga instructor or not. Yeah. And I, therefore, I would, I, yeah, I, I, I think you are doing things to have strong mental health for yourself. And that's great. And, I, and the fact that you have a podcast and you're able to possibly reach other people to find that in themselves, that's great, too. So, yeah, I, I really want to see your TED Talk on things Eddie Cohn learned from his podcast. I think that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of trying to um, – you, you actually liked the post about a week ago. I've, I've realized caring and listening to others are two – um, traits that we need to bring back. And I think the podcast is sort of reminding me of the the value of like listening. Actually, you know, no phone around. Uh, everything is off. Uh, I mean, maybe my senses are even heightened just because the headphones are on. So your, your voice is like in my brain. Yeah. Uh, so everything, the only <clears throat> thing that's heightened right now is the sense of hearing uh, and that's, I mean, obviously I see you, but it, it really forces your voice inside of me. And it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. yeah. And oh man, I see your cat over there. That's great. <laughs> yeah, right? So yeah. Uh, oh um, man, he's chilling. Well, uh, this, this, um, this was great. I really appreciate it. I, I, I was, I was intrigued by that book. Say the book again about the narcissism, narcissism was, yeah, I, I, I don't want to talk about it by Terrence Real. He is a family counselor specializing in couples therapy. And uh, but partic- this book is about male depression. Hmm. And it's it blew my mind. I've read it probably four times. Uh, and yeah, his, his whole take on internal dialogue. He's, he's he, well, I'll, I'll use the F word. He's a feminist therapist. And so he comes, which is kind of, it puts a very relational view on things and attacks patriarchy and shows how toxic masculinity is just as bad for men as it is for women. Hmm. And uh, regarding trauma, uh, he really blew my mind when he said there, there are three, he, there's three forms of trauma healing that have to happen when a man has a physical trauma. There's the physical healing from the trauma. There's the emotional healing from the trauma, and there's the emotional healing to the masculinity that has to happen because this the semantics of it would be a diminished man. You know, I was diminished. I like had this nerve damage. I mean, I couldn't compete with Vinnie Caliuta and you know, I mean, my heroes. And so he really dives into how important it is to force and explore the masculine healing that needs to happen through trauma and how different it is from just the emotional healing from the trauma itself, how mm. those are separate. And then all the quotes of other people that he involved, I ended up going and reading those books and all those books were great. 
The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. He, he's the one who diagnosed PTSD, and his book is pretty much like the 101 on understanding trauma and how it exists in the body hmm. and how it just is completely under the radar of our mind and how we really find out about how trauma affects our mind by physical reactions to it. Like, I thought this clenching up of my hand when I would play with Eddie Cohn was because of nerve damage in my thumb. Little did I know that there was a, there was a sound associated between the breaking glass from my accident and the cymbals I was playing that brought me right back to that moment that I walked through the door and I clenched up my hand because there were shards of glass cutting my skin open. Yeah. And they're like, I just never would have thought of that. But I mean, but he but somatic therapy is really great at exploring tension and physical responses to different kind of uh, thought processes, to tracking physical response to different impetus. And so, I mean, the trauma therapy is, has come so far in the last 10 years. It's, it's really great. Wow. Well, Adam Gust, I appreciate you being on the show and taking the time. Uh, you've been a big part of my life for a long time. And um, yeah, it, it means a lot that you took the time and I, it's, it, was, it was great to see you. Yeah, thanks, man. Your session with uh, Evan Beagle was a turning point for me. I remember being in L.A. and it had been like a year and a half and maybe a year and I hadn't done a session in L.A. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? And then lo and behold, I answered your ad and music connection, Jeff Buckley and Radiohead. I was like, oh, OK, this guy's cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, and then I ended up working with you and Evan and working with Evan more, and that led to more things. And yeah, it was definitely a turning point, not only getting to record at all, but record music that I enjoyed, Yeah, which is a huge deal. Like, oh my God, you're kidding me. Wow. So yeah, thank you. Of Appreciate course. It. Yeah, man. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you really fast on, on my phone, but I, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Later, dude. Yeah, go back. Go to sleep, little baby, just to see if you wake up fine. To see if you're happy with what's inside of me. Give me a warning if you're over me. Never leave me I hear your heart You're still safe with me I try to make up for wasted time 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 I know.